You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demerco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with a bunch of shorter video interviews. You can also find all this content on thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. A little later, I'll be speaking to Alberto Villarreal, founder and MD of Nepanoa. We'll be discussing the options available to manufacturers and retailers who are looking to diversify sourcing risk, particularly if they're looking at options in Mexico. But first, we're looking at global economic and trade forecasts and what they mean for freight markets. To do this, I'm delighted to introduce my first guest. He's been one of the world's leading logistics consultants for over two decades. He's the current director of supply chain transportation consulting at S&P Global Market Intelligence, and he's calling in today from Los Angeles. Paul Bingham, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Hey, Mike, great to have me on today. Thank you, Mike. Paul, the global economy. I think all of us in transportation and economics and logistics and shipping, we all knew that the mother of all hangovers was coming after COVID to a degree. <laughs> but the global economy itself has, has also been staggering. What, what's your general view on where we are now? Well, our company's monitoring what's going on everywhere, and we've seen globally we're in a downturn, where we are in a intentionally a slowing economy in most countries where the central banks are doing their best to slow the economy in their attempt to fight inflation. That's really what's happening. So we have this overhang from the spending boom that we all enjoyed with fiscal stimulus uh, around the world during the pandemic when we were shut in. And the payback from that is still going on. That's what we're seeing with the uh, central banks purposely trying to slow economic activity, which results from freight transportation logistics. Slow demand says there's less freight to move because their people, their consumption has been reduced from the amount of goods that they were buying two and three years ago. And we're seeing it directly across the industry. On that global level, what forecasts are you guys making for metrics like industrial production, exports of goods? GDP growth, when do we see something that might look like a, a major recovery when we look at the global economic regions and, and how would all this play out for trade? Quite a big question, I know. Yes, well, but actually that timing question is critical. In fact, this is the year, 2023 is the trough, the, the, the slowest point in our company's forecast for the next several years and coming off of really since going back since before the pandemic. Global growth this year is is barely close to 2%, which is bordering from a global perspective on being recessionary um, globally. And we have some individual countries that have fallen into recession or, or teetering on that, on the brink of that. And it's not all due to the COVID overhang. There's still the repercussions from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some of the other disruption that we've seen in some other markets. We have in China, the slower than they hoped recovery from the end of the lockdowns in COVID. So even growth in a country like China, which has sometimes in the past been the locomotive for growth, is not really producing the pace of growth 
that their own leadership had hoped for and that many exporters were looking for for 2023. But optimistically, what we are forecasting is that this year is the trough. 2024 starts to show signs of recovery. We will see a rebound in, in trade that's falling this year, uh, similarly to be much slower than in every any year since that very beginning of the first half of 2020 and the pandemic. But with the rebound coming out of this, this trough in 2024 and even to 2025, probably not at the pace that many would hope it to be. We're not going to go back to 5 or 6% growth globally. We're going to be struggling to see 3% growth next year, 4% growth um, in 2025. And with some downside risk of certain countries like the U.S. still not yet, but still potentially falling into recession, so that there still could be a drag on trade demand, especially in 2024. Also, I should note that within industrial production, there are certain sectors in manufacturing and in residential housing that actually are in recession in in the sense of how much there's been a decline from the peaks in the pandemic to where they are today. And that's led to what some are calling a freight recession, as some of the character of spending that is still going on by consumers and households and even businesses has shifted more back towards services and less focused on goods consumption, which has meant you've seen a bigger downward swing this year in the goods production, manufacturing, inventory building, uh, logistics handling industries than in the services sectors that have seen a a more lagged response um, and and slightly stronger growth in many sectors in services uh, this year. Just you mentioned the U.S. freight recession versus a U.S. recession that might be coming Ahead, can you just give us a, a little bit more information on that? I know that one of the elements that will affect those two things is you guys are predicting core inflation in the US will decline quite rapidly over the next two years, even though you're expecting a, a weaker dollar to drive up import prices and favor exports. Where do all these things fit in? Well, let, let's start with the inflation story. Inflation is coming down. We just had released this morning in the United States the latest numbers, uh, latest monthly data that the headline, top line, consumer price index has actually fallen to 3% annual pace last month. However, if we look at core inflation, if we take out the more volatile fuel and energy, where energy prices are are a big contributor to the slowdown we've seen as they've actually been declining, we're still running uh, 4.8%. We're still running more than double the 2% inflation target that the central bank has. The Federal Reserve Board is intent on getting inflation under control, and and their target announced very publicly is 2%, and we're still running at the core inflation rate of twice that. So that's really driving the monetary policy, which is affecting the whole of the economy, and that extends on beyond the U.S. borders, as we've seen. One of the mechanisms for that is U.S. dollar exchange rate. The dollar strengthened last year as that gap between the the interest rates in the the U.S. and and overseas had, had shifted some and the outlook for growth and, quite frankly, the flight to safety during the Ukraine invasion. The dollar is starting to weaken. That's anticipated to continue. That has impacts on trade for Producers outside the U.S., a a, a stronger dollar is a challenge in terms of trying to sell into the U.S. market initially, but actually promotes U.S. demand for for imports uh, when the dollar is strong. Uh, Conversely, if you're exporting and you're competing against U.S. producers, uh, that strong dollar actually helps you. And when the dollar weakens, that's when the dollar then is advantaged in terms of U.S. exports trying to compete with other countries. The trade deficit persists, though, in the United States. Uh, They're still importing much more than exporting. 
And that over the long term tends to pull the dollar back down. The adjustment mechanism is in part a weakening of the dollar, and that's anticipated to continue. And we're actually forecasting that the dollar will continue to soften against uh, the major trade partner country currencies into 2024 and on into 2025. I, I think there's some other examples we can point to, but let's move on to your next question. We've got a lot we can cover today. I'm going to come back to what some of those economic forecasts look in terms of the domestic freight industry in the US in a moment, but let's just jump back to those exporting countries. Everyone was expecting from China a big bounce back when COVID lockdowns were removed. Hasn't really happened. There hasn't been a big boom in consumer demand. Exports are, are weak. More generally, this rebound in 2024, I mean, what does that look like for China and also that wider Asian economic block, Southeast Asia, the Far East? What does all that look like for those guys in terms of GDP growth? And when might we see more exports or is that entirely down to what happens in US, Europe and elsewhere? Well, with mainland China specifically, they clearly have some headwinds in certain sectors like construction, especially a private sector residential construction, is not coming back despite stimulus effects. I mean, the, the government's taken some concrete policy steps this year in an attempt to restart or to promote growth in those sectors that are lagging below the levels that they have as their own targets. And as they had expected for 2023, as there's some reluctance on the part of some of those private sector elements that are extended in terms of their debt and are still facing challenges where even if they're not directly exporters, they're tied to some weakness in those export segments in, in, the, in the economy in mainland China. Our forecast for growth for China this year is 5.5%. That, compared to the rest of the world, sounds very strong, but is still below what, in a rebound year after the end of the lockdowns, many had been anticipating and forecasting. And even, you know, really the government there was looking for faster growth in that in 2023. And, and we don't see that it, they're going to be able to achieve the, the desired level of growth. And that has then repercussions for demand for exports from the rest of the world. And, and partly it's a reflection of weakness in the rest of the world, where some of the export markets that uh, the, the producers in mainland China would, would like to be selling into are soft or not performing at all compared to what they would like to see in terms of what they could be selling. And that, you know, and it's a huge economy now, still number two. Uh, India's coming on in terms of going to be a rival for number two, but China is still incredibly important especially on the goods production and the, and the physical commodity trade side of logistics for the world, China is still incredibly important. Now, the rest of Southeast Asia, they're tied to that network infrastructure evermore as there has been some shifts in source supply for the world and seeing more manufacturing, especially of some of the lower value added commodity categories shifting out of China over time as the wage rates and so forth, the competitiveness of some sectors in China has been reduced. And some other companies being very de deliberate and intentional in trying to reduce their source supply reliance on China so that some countries are, are uh, like Vietnam or Bangladesh and Thailand, uh, many of the Southeast Asian countries are benefiting from that source supply shift and are, are still uh, seeing uh, some growth on the back of that. But they're also still tied to demand from China. Um, they still trade intensively with China. China is their biggest trading partner in many cases. You know, even our, our traditional uh, Western trade partners in Japan are still tied in terms of on the, the good side of trade significantly to China and therefore not seeing the growth in China that they would like. That even affects the, the Japanese economy. So we're forecasting those other countries 
are also being hit by those headwinds of the, the global slowdown in demand, as well as specifically some slowdown compared to expectations coming from China. And then that translates directly into the trade volumes and the, uh, the, the demand that's there for global logistics as those markets are not quite as strong as they would, would like to have been. And, and some were hoping that they would be in, in still this recovery lingering after the pandemic. How would you factor in geopolitical risk in terms of your analysis and your forecasts? Uh, obviously, we have war in Europe. We've got a lot of tensions in the South China Sea. The US-China trade war has been intensifying since it sort of kicked off under the Trump presidency. How do you factor all that in? Well, we have a whole group that, that monitors and, and forecasts uh, political risk um, and, and other metrics of, of risk. And I think the geopolitical risk has become more important under risk management for supply chain managers everywhere, obviously, in the last few years. You know, on top of the pandemic risk of, of health effects and other risks that have threatened and, and have substantially swung supply chains, such as supply chain managers now are taking that much more into consideration than some of them were doing previously. And clearly, there have been lessons learned about supply chain sourcing and supply chain network design that many supply chain managers are urgently trying to shift, though what we've seen is that that happens with a lag. That takes time. It's not easy to say, okay, let's look for some alternative suppliers and start to give them some of our business. You can be very deliberate about adopting that as a strategy, but actually achieving that shift in the compositional sourcing mix for your supply chains for some sectors takes years to do, not something that you can do overnight or in one quarter. But it depends on the commodity category. You know, some things like footwear and apparel, you can move perhaps production of more quickly than something like electronics or we've seen with semiconductor chips. It's not something you can overnight say, okay, we're going to have substitute suppliers of very sophisticated value-added manufactured equipment. That takes quite a long time to, to have the whole infrastructure of all your tier suppliers move, in addition, perhaps, to your direct supplier. And that affects uh, retail networks. It affects the, the intermediaries involved, even fundamentally the transportation carriers, you know, is the port infrastructure there to handle the volumes that potentially could be moved. And we're seeing those changes happening. They're going to continue to change, even sort of despite the, the quarter to quarter macroeconomic demand, as these are long-term changes that are going to continue to play out over a period of years. But it's not just related to, say, reduction of, of dependency on mainland China. It's also the lessons learned from what's happened in Eastern Europe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's another example of substantial geopolitical risk that was probably not adequately being measured and, and quantified and taken into to, to account in decision making prior to that Russian invasion of Ukraine that now are lessons learned that we're going to see following through on supply chain design and the country sourcing that occurs everywhere. Even in North America, there's geopolitical risk with Mexico and other countries in Central and South America, such that all of those sourcing decisions now are not simplistic. It's not a simple country or a country plus one you know, example. It's going to be more complicated, more complex, but also in the long run, more secure, more resilient than we were as a world collectively headed into the pandemic and, and what's happened subsequently. Very interesting, Paul. And, and in part two, I'm actually going to drill down into that a bit when I'm speaking to Alberto Villarreal, founder and MD of Nepanoa, about what all of that looks like for Mexico. Let's stick with that a little bit, though, outside of Mexico, at least. What's your forecast on the rate at which we'll see US Inc., if I might call it that, moving away from China in the coming years? And, and who's going to win from this 
process and, and a secondary question if if I may just throw one in there. Is this about de-risking or, or is it about decoupling? Well, I think that question of de-risking versus decoupling is an important one. There's been much talk in the last few years about a decoupling. I think there's some proponents of that, that terminology that have a point to make where with the embargoes and the sanctions against Russia, we've clearly seen a, a disconnect in some commodity categories with the, the Western country interactions with the, the ecosystem of, of Russia, and then other countries that are choosing to still stay in that orbit, though as a percentage of the world economy, obviously much smaller percentage, but obviously mainland China, even India to some extent, continuing to trade with Russia. So you're seeing a, a breakdown from the, the true global trading environment that we saw, say, in the previous decade coming into when China acceded to the WTO over 20 years ago. But does that really result in a full decoupling? The answer is no for big countries like mainland China. There's still too much two-way dependency in terms of the economies at this point to fully break free from that. And I think really what we're seeing is the de-risking. What really matters for those companies and the supply chain managers is to reduce the risk to the performance of the supply chains that you depend on or that you're utilizing and to make sure that going forward, you're not caught out again like you've been in the last few years to the same degree. And basically paying for insurance and that what really constitutes conceptually an insurance policy by having multiple suppliers and spreading your risk as your portfolio of country trade partners to not just be so dependent on one. That extends even for, say, North American trade into not depending solely on Canada and Mexico. Even though the U.S., Mexico, Canada free trade agreements in place and you still have tariffs being applied by the United States and retaliatory tariffs with trade with China. The, the still the, the, the relationships are such that companies are not quickly going to completely abandon a mainland China market. It's still a huge country with tremendous domestic markets, which many companies still want to be able to sell into. Even if they're not going to depend solely for sourcing on mainland China, they still want to be engaged and, and be able to profit from trade with China when they can, measured and, and managed in terms of risk management to limit the risk and yet not ignore markets that are open, even if there are tariffs imposed, you know, where you still have business to be made and not give it up to your competitors, either at a country level or a company level, such that really it's a, it's a risk managed world where country source supply shifting becomes more complex and is done within the limitations and the bounds that exist politically in terms of tariff impositions or even trade sanctions. But up to the limits of that, take advantage of the markets wherever they are, where you can still make sales or supply, you know, some of what you're buying that's a risk-adjusted, risk-measured decision to be very deliberate and yet still trying to do what you've been doing in terms of years of, of managing your costs and trying to depend on the transportation and the other network options that exist to maximize your markets. So building up resiliency without overloading your costs. Very importantly, and paying attention to costs in all of those decisions. And costs include a full cost that takes into account risk. So it's not purely that measured landed cost, irrespective of risk. It's taking that into account. And I should add, there's even some other factors for some companies now managing very deliberately and explicitly environmental risk so that there's some of those other criteria that are being used in some of the decision making so that it's not always purely your landed costs. It may take into account the carbon footprint of your supply chain and quantifying that and managing that as part of the risk decision making that you're making in designing those supply chains and determining who you'll do business with. Before we finish, Paul, I'd like to just have a look at some of these particular freight markets and how all of this is affecting them. 
First, if we might pivot back to the US domestic freight industry, I'll put that large umbrella over for it and I'll let you break that down. You mentioned inflation before. We've got, we've got a freight recession. We've got a potential economic recession. Rates are down. Costs are, are up. How resilient are those companies? Uh, are you expecting redundancies? Are you expecting failures? How do you view that market? We're seeing, especially in, in North America, what we've seen in past business cycles when there's a downturn in freight demand. We're in a traditional pattern that even really escapes a focus just on what's happened in the pandemic, where when the periods of peak demand occur, the industry adds capacity. It adds capacity in workforce and equipment and facilities, but all that takes time. You could add some workers maybe more quickly than you can add a new freight terminal. Or, or buy a new ship, or, or even, especially in the pandemic, acquire new, new trucks or, or, or other freight equipment. But those orders that were, re, were placed during the peaks in the pandemic, you know, finally get filled, and that capacity comes on with a lag, and it comes on in the face of softening demand. And we've seen that supply-demand shift, where demand weakened and supply continued to strengthen, so rates have then fallen dramatically in some cases in the margin. We're down double digits in rates. And the ocean transportation rates on North America, Trans-Pacific is probably the most extreme example, you know, down 80, 90 percent from the peaks that they had hit, you know, dramatic swings. And that has financial repercussions for the carriers that went through those whipsaw record high rates really across mode of transport. I mean, it was true at air cargo, it was true in trucking, it was true in rail, it was true in ocean shipping all of those record high rates for those companies, and now faced with dramatic downturns in the rate environment where there's too much capacity chasing that weakened demand. And consequently, some of the companies that were weaker financially are not making it. They're not going to survive and that there'll be consolidation. We've seen merger acquisition activity. Some of the stronger have bought the weaker. And we'll even see probably some continued failures as some of the companies at the margin don't make it. That, especially at the smaller companies, we've seen a lot of new entrants that had come into the market have already exited the market. That's true from container shipping on the Trans-Pacific to, to trucking domestically in the United States. That doesn't happen in the railroad industry, but there's clearly issues in terms of the rate swings, in terms of capacity and employment. And in fact, that's really what has been sticky. The employment has stayed, not really surprisingly, but perhaps falling with the greatest lag because of the, the recent history of not having sufficient workers. So the companies were reluctant to let go of some of that labor, but the labor costs have also been sticky on the downside where the wages have not readjusted so much. So you've got a built-in higher cost basis on the labor side. And the only way then to really address that is not so you, you can't negotiate down the wages very quickly, but you can lay people off or reduce their hours. And that's happening. And we've seen a, a drop in employment. And I should comment that that's in the context more broadly in the economy that we anticipate will eventually happen, will be higher unemployment. There'll be fewer workers, worker growth as we get into 2024. And that's one of the signals we're actually looking for, for a measure of when the central banks will decide that the inflation targets have been met and the weakness of the economy is, is such that they can start to reduce the, the very strong monetary contractions that they've imposed now when, when unemployment starts to tick up. And it really hasn't happened yet, but we've seen an end to the growth in employment pace that we'd seen. So we're really in that plateau period where employment is likely to start to get worse. And that's evident in transportation logistics. On the operator side of the actual freight carriers, also eventually in warehousing and distribution centers and some of those other facilities where there's been a capacity added beyond what was needed for demand to be satisfied this year. 
I was sort of chuckling a little bit earlier when you said that in the US, we're really desperate to get the inflation rate down to 2% or, or at least the bankers are. Because over in the UK, I mean, they would kill for 4 or 5% inflation. And that's probably true for the European Central Bank as well. But one of those underlying inflationary pressures came from supply chain rates soaring right through the pandemic. And, and you did touch on this just there with the, the container shipping lines. So container shipping rates came off quite a lot last year, but even this year, they're continuing to fall. I'll just give some numbers there for our listeners. Zenith's shipping ind index fell uh, 10% in June, and that, that followed a 27.5% collapse in May, and another 10% was lost in April. That's 50% lost in three months. Is, is all of this just a return to normalcy? And a secondary question, why aren't carriers cutting capacity? It seems sort of slightly mad that they're not. Well, this is the conundrum really in container shipping going back decades. The tendency and the attraction to purchase capacity when times are good and the ships get constructed and then they, that capacity comes on after the peak of the cycle and the, and the industry has done it to themselves again. The order books were record high in terms of the percentage of total deployed TEU capacity. They can increase the scrapping of ships, which they're doing. They have done blank sailings to reduce services. They're slow steaming again. They're, you know, they're operating the vessels more slowly, both for environmental compliance, but also operating cost reductions and as a capacity utilization approach. And yet ultimately, you know, they're competing for market share. And can they, you know, resist the temptation to lower rates to fill the ship this week? It's the classical marginal operating cost challenge for any transportation carriers. And clearly the global shipping industry collectively has not exercised the discipline to try to restrict capacity as capacity has far exceeded ocean transportation demand in 2023. And the outlooks for them going forward into 2024 and 2025 are really no better with some additional vessel capacity still coming out of the shipyards. Even as orders for some of those new vessels attempt to be delayed and so forth, there's still likely to be yet additional excess capacity coming in and in the face of weak demand. And it's going to take probably several years to get back towards more equilibrium in supply demand, despite attempts by the industry to try to reduce the net impact of all that excess vessel capacity coming into the market. Did you expect them to act differently, though? I mean, I know a lot of people I've interviewed over the last few years, they, they thought that the container shipping had, had learned its lessons from the past to turn over a new leaf. It was more organized, it was more centralized, it was more consolidated, and they weren't going to go down that road again. All of those arguments have some truth to them, but the long-term view has been this is an industry that collectively over decades can't seem to, you know, despite consolidation and all of those other factors, collectively can't seem to get past this boom-bust cycle, except that we've just seen the most extreme boom by far ever in the history of container shipping. And, and maybe the bus cycle that we're in is not going to quite get quite as low. It may be that we don't see rates quite fall to where they were pre-pandemic. There are some built-in costs, such as fuel is not quite fall into the depths that it had at the very beginning of the pandemic. And there's some other operating costs that are higher, including the requirement to, to comply with some of the new environmental rules on carbon emissions on the vessels, vessel emissions. But fundamentally, it's an industry that it seems globally is not organized yet in a way that they can exercise or choose to exercise economic power to sustain rates on a multi-year basis, not just in a pandemic boom conditions. 
that, that will earn them as much money as they did in the last few years. So our forecast is that there's several years ahead of, of the container shipping industry facing a, a supply demand imbalance that's not in their favor to the benefit of the shippers that are enjoying rates that are coming down to being much more what they were accustomed to prior to the pandemic. Well, I think even with the current spending spree on new buildings and that whole decarbonization transition, I still think they might have a bit of cash left over in those reserves to get them through a downturn. <laughs> yes, it's it's not as if the industry collectively is in any really sorry financial state with the overhang <laughs> from, from what they earned during the pandemic. But in terms of just what's the rate this week that you can see on the spot markets, it's not anywhere near what those carriers would like to be seeing when certainly what they were spoiled but enjoying through no fault of their own um, <laughs> during the pandemic. Paul Bingham, Director of Supply Chain Transportation Consulting for S&P Global Market Intelligence. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Welcome back to the Freight Buyers Club. My next guest has collaborated with some of the largest companies in the world, helping them transform their business operations across geographies and verticals. In 2020, he founded his own business, to help U.S. companies establish themselves in Latin America. Alberto Villarreal, Managing Director of Nepanoa, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Mike, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. Let's talk about nearshoring. Let's talk about bringing business to the United States, Mexico, the new world of supply chain, and you know, share some stories, success, but also unsuccessful stories so everybody can learn. It'll be a pleasure. Did I get the pronunciation of those names in the company correct there, Alberto? Mike, I have to congratulate you because you said it very well in English, Alberto Villarreal. For those of you that speak Spanish, it's Alberto Villarreal, but they knew that already. But I was very impressed with how you pronounced Nepanoa. Nepanoa, Mike. Yeah, thank you very much. That, that's, that, that's a Scouse version of English doing Spanish, I think that's what we can call it. You did it, you did it very well. But let me tell you a little bit of history about Nepanoa. Nepanoa is actually not even Spanish. It's a word in Nahuatl. Nahuatl was the language of the Aztecs. The Aztecs was the most important civilization in the pre-Columbine era. And they spoke Nahuatl. And Nepanoa means to accompany. It's a verb. To accompany, to be a companion, to be a guide. And that's exactly what we do at Nepanoa. We accompany businesses through expansion and transformation efforts, United States, Mexico, and Latin America. Well, let's get into how exactly you do that. But let's look at the, the context of all of this and why I'm asking you these questions. We heard earlier in this podcast from s Paul Bingham how geopolitical realities or, or potential realities are creating new challenges for those taking a long-term view of how they want supply chains to support their businesses. We're now post-COVID, we've got war in Europe, we've got this escalating China-US trade war. How are these rapidly evolving geopolitical and macroeconomic landscapes changing how the companies you work with view supply chain risk and what sort of options do they have when they're looking to de-risk their businesses? Mike, you mentioned two very important geopolitical 
issues going on. The U.S.-China trade war, which there's no signs that it will stop. On the contrary, things will escalate, then hopefully it doesn't escalate to a point of a bellic conflict. But then you also have the Russia-Ukraine war and everything that that entails from an energy perspective, from a Europe supply perspective. But I want to go a little bit further back. I mean, we tend not to talk about it anymore, right? Because we don't want to talk about it. But two years ago, two and a half, three years ago, we were in COVID, right? And COVID was really the trigger for many of these companies to really the risks of operating so far away. Let's say that you have operations in the United States, but your supply chain is all over Asia or mostly concentrated in China. That was really the trigger. That was the point where risks about operating in China and risks about having your supply chain in one spot, not fully diversified and super far away, that's when they materialized. Then after COVID, we have those two geopolitical conflicts that we just mentioned, the US-China trade war and the Russia-Ukraine war. So what is happening is that companies are really focused on two things. The first one is, how do I reduce the risk in my supply chain? And that doesn't mean, hey, let's just move everything back to the United States, back to Canada, back to Mexico. It's not about everything, but it's about taking a deep look into your supply chain and say, hey, what is truly a priority for our company? And we need it closer. And by closer, I mean, there's more transparency. By closer, I mean, you can take advantage of USMCA. By closer, I mean, you're in the same time zone. By closer, I mean, laws that are derived from USMCA are respected. But also, companies are not fully leaving China. Companies are not fully leaving Vietnam. Philippines, Indonesia, they actually still have some operations there, but it's about diversifying. So in an event like the ones that are occurring now may escalate, like a US-China trade war, like the Russia-Ukraine war becoming bigger. Now you have a diversified supply chain that you know mitigates risks and it enables you to continue working, which is not what happened three years ago when COVID happened that impacted the whole world. Of, as you say, COVID closed down all those borders. You couldn't even go and see what your producers were up to. We'll come on to Mexico. Obviously, that's your focus in a moment when we look at ally, ally shoring and, and why Mexico is appealing to some of these companies as they diversify out of China. But who do you see as the other runners and riders, if I can put it like that, if you're a US producer looking for a non-China alternative? Apart from Mexico, where wins the most business? Sure. So, Mike, I love the fact that you said ally shoring. We talk about near shoring. We talk about regionalization, right? But ally shoring is truly... You know, a word that I that I use a lot and that we at Nipponoa use a lot because really what you're doing is you are still doing international business, but aiming to do business in those countries that are going to be allies for the United States. So that way you can plan a little bit longer term, right? Things can change specifically politically. We know that, but we know that if you're a U.S. company going into Mexico, we're going to be partners for the next 10, 15, 20, 50 years, right? You know, that's established. It's there. We cannot go any other way. It, it couldn't go any other way. So that's what we mean by ally shoring. But Mexico is not competing with any countries on this side of the world. It's not like companies are looking at, oh, well, we go to Mexico or Colombia, or we go to Mexico or Brazil, maybe Costa Rica for some industries. Really, the countries that are also participating in this, let, let's call it supply chain diversification, which is companies leaving China and going into other countries. But you have India that has benefited tremendously you know, over the past three years for this. You have Vietnam. Right? You have the Philippines, you have Thailand, which are those Asian emerging economies that, are, that continue to, to grow and that are taking a lot of this investment. So when companies do look at, hey, let's leave China, where do we go? Mexico plays a role, but it's competing against 
those other Asian economies that from a labor perspective are, are very competitive and from a quality perspective, they can be very competitive as well. And you don't leave that Asian region that some companies are already used to work in. As you say, some of those countries in Asia are in a great position to win some of this business, but let's, let's go to Mexico. Huge beneficiary of US investment of this ally shoring type. What does this all look like in terms of foreign direct investment? What sort of proportion of Mexico's exports can we now attribute to nearshoring, for example? So Mexico and the United States have the busiest border right now. With that being said, Mike, it's very important to remember that while United States and Mexico are the best trading partners, Mexico has more than 30 free trade agreements. Okay. So in Mexico is very competitive from a manufacturing standpoint as to, hey, let's produce in Mexico and then we go into the rest of the world. With that being said, the expectation is that Mexico's exports, about 10%, between 8.5 to 10% of those exports will increase due to nearshoring. And we're experiencing it right now because we have all this foreign direct investment coming into the country and these exports won't materialize today, but they will materialize in 2024, 2025, 2026. And that's where you see that spike. So think about it. Out of all the exports of Mexico, about 10% will be due to nearshoring, due to the investments that are happening last year, that are happening this year, and that will happen next year, right, for companies coming into Mexico. So this must be a fantastic boost for the administration of President Obrador. Have I said that right? President Obrador said it right. on, a, said on it right, a federal Mike. level, but also to the states. So Mike, you're bringing out a very important point because... As much as we work with the Mexican government, because we have to, we're usually working with the local governments, working with the states. Something that President Obrador did is they really reduced the budget of the representation of Mexico worldwide. There was a, an organization back, you know, with past presidents called Pro Mexico. And that organization really focused on attracting investment into the country as a whole. It was a federal group, right? Let's remember that Mexico is pretty big. It's, it's more than 130 million people, right? Sometimes people think of Mexico and you think of Mexico City, you think of Cancun, but really it's a big country. So that group was shut down where President Obrador came into power. What happened there was that the states on their own starting taking these spots and starting going out there to attract investment. So the most clear example is Nuevo León. Nuevo León is where Monterrey is. In Monterrey, you have... It's a very industrial city. You have huge companies that have done a lot for the country, like Cemex, like FEMSA, like Alpha. Plenty of companies that are from Monterrey, Gruma is another one, from Monterrey, and they have expanded internationally. Now, let's go back 30 years. When NAFTA came into play in 1934, the original North American Free Trade Agreement, cities like Monterrey, like Ciudad Juarez, like Tijuana, Monterrey not being a border city, you know, they benefited greatly because they started receiving foreign companies coming into Mexico. So this is not new. For Mexico. But what has happened is now that there's no federal strategy, the states are going out there, they're competing for this investment. So there are very key states like Chihuahua, like Querétaro, like Coahuila, but more importantly, Nuevo León, that have really taken this opportunity to attract different businesses. And you have companies, Mike, for example, Tesla, they announced a $5 billion investment in Nuevo León. You have Ternium, $3.2 billion. Again, in Nuevo León, they were already operating there. Ternium is, is a so it's sort of, this is an Argentinian company. It's focused on steel. And they're doubling down in their investment in Monterrey. Kia, Korean automaker, right? Once again, in Monterrey, in Nuevo León. For context, Monterrey is the capital of Nuevo León. Nuevo León is the state. Monterrey is the city. And they're 
once again, doubling down on their investment. They already have a huge plan. They're putting billions of dollars in again. But if you look at the rest of the country, you have BMW investing more than a billion dollars, right? You have Nissan and Ford, Viking, Continental. And this is just from the automotive sector. For example, we could talk about Tata. Tata invested a billion dollars in Mexico for the research center. So these companies are coming into the country. And just to give a little bit of facts there, you know, it's expected that in 2023, in Mexico will receive over $40 billion of foreign direct investment. Think about that. Last year, it was less than 35. So we're talking about a growth of more than 10% in foreign direct investment. And just in Q1, the announcements of investment around different parts of Mexico have really made this number of 45 billion very attainable. I think we're going to go past that. So it's been a very interesting and very dynamic first half of the year for international business in Mexico. Now, I, I probably should admit here that when I was supposed to be studying in Arizona, I did spend an awful lot of time crossing over the border and hanging out in Sonora. Thank you, Bahia Kino. But for some people who are listening from around the world, can you just explain exactly where some of those states are? There's a lot of this investment in those states. Is that going in near the border, just as a general geography lesson? Mike, that, that's a great point. I mean, let's be honest. Mexico in and of itself does not offer a big enough market for all of these companies. What's happening is that companies go to Mexico to take advantage of the USMCA. That USMCA is how, you, how it's, it's the new version of, of NAFTA. That's how we call it in the United States, USMCA. In Mexico, it's called TMEC. In Canada, it's called Kuzma. It's one of those things where the same agreement, every country decided to put their, their country first, so they, so they may name it differently. So historically, those northern states usually receive most of the investments. You're talking about Baja California, Sonora, Chihuahua, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Coahuila. Why? Because companies would like to go into Mexico, manufacture there, and have a very short ride to the border. You're talking one hour at the most to be able to put your product in the United States. So those states are receiving a lot of investment still. But what has happened is that it's not enough. The volume of investment, the number of companies that are coming into Mexico, it's impossible for all of them to be situated that close to the border. So you have states, as I mentioned before, like Querétaro. You have states like San Luis. And of course, very important, Mexico City. I mean, we can't forget that Mexico City is over 26 million people. And yes, you're talking about Mexico City, but when you look around Mexico City, you have Estado de Mexico, which actually also receives a lot of these companies. There's several reasons why the northern states become so attractive. But the main one is it's close to the border. And that helps you from a logistics perspective. That helps you from uh, a security perspective. And that, that's something that I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you have a question later on about security, right? But that's something that needs to be addressed in Mexico. And also as this states and the cities of these states are used to working with international companies, the people that you have there are already, they already follow this North American working culture because it's been happening for a while. As you get further away from the borders, of course, the importance of infrastructure increases, especially if you're trying to access the U.S. market or the Canadian market even. There's been a lot of investment in infrastructure to improve the logistics flows. Can you give us a little overview of what that looks like? Sure. So I wish, Mike, I could tell you there's a lot, a lot, a lot. There's some investment in infrastructure. And that's, that's a piece where you have two agents really driving this investment. So when we talk about our infrastructure, we're talking about roads, we're talking about ports, we're talking about airports. You know, in the end, that's the infrastructure that we're really looking for so that companies can operate in Mexico wholly. Very rarely you will hear me say 
that it's enough. There's always room for more investment. There's always room for making things better to attract more companies and just to make the business environment safer for everybody. But if you look at the transportation time, I mean, really, there's not a single place in Mexico where it will take you more than one day to get to the United States with the infrastructure as it is, with the roads that we have. And that's very important, right? Because we can talk a lot about the north of Mexico, but if we were going to the center of the country, even to the southeast of the country, right, where there's very few companies, for example, in the southeast, you will have some maquilas for textile, you know, producing shirts, shorts, underwear in the southeast of Mexico. But even there, you can get to the United States. From a ports perspective, we have more than 100 ports in Mexico. This is very important because remember that Mexico, if you think geographically, we're connecting the, the Pacific and the Atlantic. And there's a very important investment that I want to mention there. And it's driven by the government. It's called El, El Canal del Istmo. Okay. So if you look at Mexico, in that little tail in the Southeast, you have the Pacific Ocean on the left of a map, and then you have the Gulf of Mexico, okay, which you can go out into the Atlantic. And there's a little tail of Mexico that is very narrow. Right, that it includes two states, Veracruz and Oaxaca. So what the government is investing in is to be able for companies, or for, in this case, for boats, to get to Mexico and cross via rail. You undock rail, and then you dock again on the side of the Gulf. So that way you can connect the Pacific Ocean with the Atlantic Ocean, and you save all the time of going down all the way to the Panama Canal. So that's an investment that's happening in Mexico today, and they're doing it the right way. And they're actually incentivizing companies to build industrial parks along the rail that connects the Pacific with the Atlantic. So that's a great investment that the Mexican government is doing. Another one that it has to be related to ports and rails is driven by Grupo Caxor, C-A-X-X-O-R. I love it because it's a private investment, right? And they're receiving the support from the government to do it. And what it is, is they are enhancing one of the ports in Sinaloa and then building rail to the United States. So that way, this is going to be the closest point from China into Mexico and the United States. So you're gonna go into Sinaloa and dock there and then go into the United States. It's still being debated if that rail is gonna go through New Mexico, through Texas, because that brings another point, Mike. There's different borders in Mexico, different crossings between the United States and Mexico. And most of this cross-border uh, transactions happens through the Laredo border where you have Eagle Pass and Piedras Negras, where you have Ciudad Juarez in El Paso, right? Where you have Colombia Laredo in Nuevo León. So what we're going to be seeing is more investments in different border crosses, which will diversify the points of entry between United States and Mexico, which is all positive. It's all positive from security perspective. It's all positive from an efficiency perspective. And it's all positive, you know, for the states, right? Because, because you may have companies stay within your state so that you can access the U.S. border. Finally, from an airport perspective, there's a new cargo airport in Mexico City that what I've heard is, you know, everybody has been raving about how good it is. But with that being said, throughout the last three years, we also saw an increase in volume for other airports in Mexico. For example, the airport in Querétaro, the airport in Nuevo León, they're actually getting more cargo shipments. And this is also good. As long as we can diversify it throughout Mexico, it really enhances other regions and not only the North. And something very important Mike to mention is USMCA. We can talk about infrastructure, but in the end, all of this is driven by the US-Mexico-Canada free trade agreement. I mean, the fact that you can operate in either one of the three countries and trade freely between the three countries, it's a plus for every angle. And 
it's not like it's been working for the past three, four years that it has been in place. This has been working for more than 30 years, since 1993, 1994, where the original NAFTA was enacted. And not as many companies are taking advantage of that. And that's a very important point. A big positive as well, but we, we'll have to focus on that negative, which you have raised a couple of times on security and crime. We heard from Realers Jess Dankert on our previous Freight Buyers Club podcast that crime and particularly cargo theft is a real problem for many retailers that are producing in Mexico. What can these companies do to limit risk and what are the authorities doing to help them? Mike, that's a, that's a great point. And it's always a big elephant in the room, right? No, the, the, the white elephant in the room. When, when we speak to companies, that's either the second or third question that, that, that we get asked, right? The first one, it's always, will I be able to find the right people? Which the, absolute, the answer is yes, the people in Mexico, the workers in Mexico are just stellar. That's why when, people, when companies get to Mexico, they never leave. The second one is also, well, tell me about security. And I'll tell you something about security. It truly depends on when, where, and how you operate. There are states that are very safe from a commercial perspective. You have Coahuila, you have Nuevo León, you have Chihuahua that are safe, you have Querétaro that are safe. But what you're truly referring to is that trip from a specific part of Mexico into the United States. And unfortunately, I don't think the government is doing enough to fix it. Before taking that comment out of context, we need to think about what really is theft. Is it a situation where companies have not gone to Mexico because of cargo theft? Or have they left Mexico because of cargo theft? And I think we will all struggle to find a company that has left Mexico because of cargo theft. We will struggle to find a company that doesn't choose to go to Mexico because of cargo theft. It is a risk that is there and that it needs to be mitigated. There's technology to mitigate it. There's several companies doing it. There's your process, your logistics process to try to mitigate it. And it's just something that we need to operate with in Mexico. Hopefully the government invests more in fixing these types of issues because it's definitely not a good look. And you know, though, unfortunately, those are the things that hit the news right, worldwide when you hear about those bad things happening. But if you think of the border crossing in Laredo, right, which is quote unquote, a hot town in the past five years, really cargo couldn't go across the border once. Where it was where the city was shut down, there was crime. I was like, okay, sounds good. We're not gonna be able to accept any cargo going in and out of the port once in five years. Apart from that, it has flown through. So yes, definitely an issue, definitely something that the Mexican government needs to work on more. But with that being said, at Mepanoa, we have not had a single client, a single company has left the country because of cargo theft or decided eventually not to go to Mexico because of cargo theft. Risks that need to be mitigated, but it's definitely worth it to try to mitigate them to continue operating in Mexico. Do you push your clients towards particular states? You mentioned a few there. Are there certain states that you'd say, no, okay, look, this is too risky. It's too far away. This flows too exposed. Well, that state's not secure enough. What a great question, because it, it enables me to, to talk a little bit about how we do things. And the first step that we always do with clients is we look at where in Mexico do you want to establish operations? And we look at where are your clients? Where's your distribution center? Tell us about your supply chain. Do you have any suppliers in Mexico that will help you? Very important. What type of people do you need? It's a big country. So it's not like every state you will find the same type of people. We look at utilities. How much energy do you need? How much water do you need? We look at land availability. And of course, we look at security. With that being said, Mike, we are absolutely independent when it comes to states. Of course, because we're doing business and these states are receiving most 
of the investments we've done business in Chihuahua, we've done business in Sonora, we've done business in, in, in Nuevo Leon, in Coahuila, right? The states that I have been mentioned, but it's because they're attracting the most FDI, not necessarily because we're pushing them from one place to the other. So when we do that analysis, definitely security plays a role. I'll give you an example. If you're manufacturing something made out of steel, that it's easy or not easy, but it's attractive for delinquents in this case, it's attractive for criminals in this case to actually go after it. Well, then you may think of, you know, different strategies to make sure that your cargo is safe. But if you're doing, example, something made out of plastic, that is very simple. That may not even be attractive for cargo. Well, you know, then that changes the, the conversation. So we, we truly look into every aspect to define where is the right place to establish your operation. And it has to do with all those components that you mentioned. And one additional one, government support. So as I mentioned at the beginning, since the federal government is letting the states go after this FDI, this foreign direct investment and treat companies the right way, it really becomes beneficial for the companies. Because what you can do is you can talk to different states and understand, hey, what are the benefits of being here? Right? So you can make them compete for your investment as well. So no, we don't push any companies to any states in particular, but what we do is we do a very thorough assessment to ensure that the investment that they're doing in Mexico is secure and that it's beneficial for them for the next 20 years. Not a one to two year thing, but we're thinking long term. As you mentioned there, Alberto, the quality of the labor supply and education standards is a big pull for lots of companies looking at Mexico. But how about costs? How do Mexican labor costs compare to, say, China or the likes of Vietnam, India, Indonesia that we've discussed earlier? Mike, from a labor perspective, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in our conversation, when you talk to companies that are already operating in Mexico and you tell them, hey, what's the best thing about being in Mexico? The people. But they don't even think about it, right? They don't even wait a second. Until it's, it's the people. Why? Because, you know, I mean, if you're operating in the United States, let's take the United States as an example here in the Midwest, we work with companies that operate under an 80, 90% turnover. How do you grow with 80, 90% turnover? It's simply impossible, right? And then you go to Mexico and you realize that by treating people well, your turnover is under 25%. Right there and then it's like, okay, we can do this, right? We can grow. We can think a little bit of longer term when we have people that are actually staying. From a labor perspective, what you're going to find, particularly comparing the United States with Mexico, Mike, where you're going to find it's at least a 60% reduction from a labor force perspective. Of course, it depends on the industry, right? In auto, for example, USMCA has certain rules in there so that the pay has to be equal between United States, Canada, and Mexico. But overall, what you're going to see is that 60% reduction in labor costs. Now, it's increasing in Mexico with all the investment coming, but it's still very far away from what you have in the United States. Compared to China, Mexico is less expensive than China by about 25% a quarter. The issue that you have there, well, that it was happening in the past, it's not happening that much anymore, is that the Chinese government, remember, would provide incentives for subsidies to ensure that those labor costs would come down for companies that were investing over there. But that's no longer happening that much. So what you're seeing is that in Mexico versus China, from a labor perspective, it's 25% lower. And it's super competitive between Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, Mexico, India. You know, really, those wages are very similar. So when you add that labor cost plus the logistics cost of doing business in Mexico versus labor plus logistics of staying in Asia, that's where the Mexico play, the Mexico business case becomes very, very important because you're really dealing with the same wages as you have in, in, in Asia, less expensive than, than China. And compared to the United States, there's simply no point of comparison, right? 
It sounds like you, you're holding the winning cards. Mexico's holding the winning cards, and, and so is Nepanoa. The only way is up then, is that right? Well, uh, we're working very hard, uh, little by little, step by step, being consistent and just understanding that we are competing against other very strong countries. But I trust, Mike, in, in the competitiveness of Mexico. I really do. This is a really good country to be doing business in, where people are amazing, where logistically things work out, where I mean, geographically we have pretty much the largest market in the United States a few hours up north. And it's a country that also plays well with other countries because we focus a lot of this conversation between U.S., Mexico, you know, a little bit of Canada. But when you have a country that has more than 33 trade agreements, right, or trade agreements with the world, that really makes it very competitive. It can be a German company and invest in Mexico. Hey, we have a lot of Chinese companies coming into Mexico. And believe me, they're not coming to Mexico for the Mexico market. We have a lot of Chinese investment going into Mexico today so that they can continue working with those U.S. suppliers. We have a lot of Korean investment, Spanish, of course, right? We did not touch in other industries. For example, one industry that is also growing a lot is financial services in Mexico. So when you look at the two specific industries, Mike, that are coming into Mexico from a foreign direct investment perspective, you have manufacturing as number one, of course, but number two, you have financial service. So things are Mexico in Mexico continue to grow. So to your point, do we have the winning cards? I, I do not like to see the winning card. I like to say that we have a very competitive, very competitive cards in front of us, but it's in people like us in people that work at Nepanoa to make those competitive cards, the best cards for businesses. And what they come to Mexico shouldn't be a short-term play. What we're truly talking about here, Mike, it's about the North American economy, not necessarily nearshoring, not necessarily in the next three to five years. We're talking about building the North American economy under which we will operate for many, many years to come. And best of luck with that as well. Alberto Villarreal, founder and managing director of Nepanoa. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you and to interact a little bit with your listeners. I hope that we get to talk again soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.